Good morning, everybody. Oh, all you bright-eyed and bushy-tailed people sitting out there. Uh, somehow, this section over here didn't get the message, right? I mean, um, Dr. Hayes, that was your job last week, to call everybody in this section and to make sure they knew to um, set up their clocks. Uh, let me tell you, this is the worst weekend of the year, isn't it though? I mean, this is just, oh, especially if you've got kids, because I already knew yesterday what was going to happen at my house. I knew that we would get home from uh, the youth devotional last night. By the way, Sierra Sanders is here with us uh, today. Uh, she is one of our youth minister candidates, and she's been with us this weekend. She talked with our uh, young people last night about uh, five things that God's children do not have to worry about, and we greatly appreciate her being here. And if you are a girl middle school through high school, you'll be with Sierra this morning, and you'll be in the teen room. Want to make sure that you're a part of that of that Bible class. And so we were there with the devotional and get to know you, getting meet and greet time with Sierra last night. And I knew that what would happen when we got home, I would say, all right, kids, it's 930. It's time to take showers and get ready for bed. And they would say, it's 830. It's not 930. You know, I, I really thought yesterday about just getting up before everybody and go ahead and setting the clocks forward. So nobody would even know and just see if anybody, anybody would notice. Anybody tried that before that you give the day before? Uh, some of you are like, yeah, I did. Oh, this is the worst. Oh, the worst weekend. And then you're trying to catch up and you're, you're trying to get that hour of sleep back. Hey, just want you to know, you lost an hour of your life last night. All right? So I want you to know, just want to be honest with you. Just want to be honest. You lost an hour of your life. Um, that's why I've got the couch still up here, by the way. Uh, Sean used this as a, uh, as a metaphor last week, and thanks so much to Sean for uh, the message that he had last week. Fantastic. And he used this as a metaphor for us thinking about being comfortable or, or uncomfortable. And, and you might remember that, that he kind of walked over here and then <laughs> jumped on the couch. And I thought, man, it looks like he's done that before. And I thought, you know, I want to do that. I want to jump on the couch. And then I thought, you know, this is going to be the day that we roll the clocks up. I'm like, I might want to sleep on the couch. I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave it up here. And so I might refer to it during the lesson. I don't know, but this is up here in case the preacher gets tired. All right. That's why, that's why it is, uh, it's here. Hopefully you won't go to sleep this morning. We'll be able to uh, keep everybody awake as we study together. Hey, don't forget, four o'clock, please come back for Vocal Union. Uh, they're going to be coming, having a concert here, and um, I want to make sure that the pews are filled and the place is packed for, uh, for that uh, concert. The, those guys are extremely talented, do a great job in their um, vocal presentation, and so we want you to come back and enjoy a time with, with Vocal Union. That'll be at four o'clock. And those of you that are going to Martin Boyd and making plans for the Prophet's Playhouse, don't worry. Uh, you'll be able to get there in time. Vocal Union will sing from four until five. That also will not affect any of our connect groups at six, our um, worship time that's also in our overflow room at six o'clock. And so everybody can come and be a part. So please do what you can to arrange your schedules to come back and to be here for this, uh, this afternoon. And that would be, that would be really awesome. Um, we want to pick up where Sean left off, all right? 
I want to pick up where Sean left off. We have been walking through uh, the book of Acts as we have been uh, learning what life after belief looks like. And Sean presented to us a picture of an uncomfortable man last week. An uncomfortable man by the name of Saul who had been comfortable. He had been comfortable. He had his religious couch that he had been sitting in and he knew where all the I's were to be dotted and where all the T's were to be crossed. And he knew exactly what he was supposed to do for God. And his mission for God was to find all of these followers of the way. That's what the followers of Jesus were known as. Before they were called Christians, they were known as the way. And he was going around looking for men, women, children, any followers of the way. And he was taking them, having them thrown in prison. He was even making sure that some of their lives were cut short. And that's what he was doing for God, and he was comfortable in that because he was defending the truth as he knew it to be truth. And Sean reminded us how that on the way to Damascus, that Saul's encounter with Jesus Christ changed his life, changed his perspective, changed his truth, and it made him very uncomfortable because because the Lord said that he was going to show Saul the things that he must suffer because of the name of Jesus. And if you know any history uh, throughout the New Testament, you see that, that Saul, um, later on, he's often primarily referred to as Paul, his Roman name, and he goes through this time of, of searching for about three years, and he goes through this time of study, he goes through this time of investigating the, the claims and the teachings of Jesus, and then he is one that just goes off around the world, as it was known at that time. And he begins to tell everybody about the good news of Jesus Christ. And he endures shipwrecks, and he endures stonings, and he endures imprisonment. And finally, he will be beheaded for the cause of Christ. And so here's where we want to pick up this week. We want to pick up about 20 years after the resurrection. Paul and his sidekick Barnabas have taken the message on the road, and they have gone on what many refer to as Paul's first missionary journey. Now, maybe some of you guys had to memorize missionary journey number one, two, and three, and where everybody went. All right, this is Paul's first trip as he takes the message global, and you can see some of the different places that are listed there as he goes into the modern area that we know as as Turkey. And as he goes and begins to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the Messiah, how that individuals can be made right with God, there are many Gentiles, non-Jews, non-law keepers who began to accept this message. And they begin to respond to this message. And they say, well, we want to be disciples. We want to be followers of this Jesus. And then that's where we have controversy. Because meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the people are beginning to feel very uncomfortable. And this controversy that we're going to look at today is so relevant because it speaks so much to what is happening in so many of our own churches right here today. It's so relevant. And it has to do with the reason that some of you at one point in time perhaps stopped being part of church. 
It has to do with the reason that some of your children no longer attend church. It's the reason that your parents, when you were young, just decided to pull you out and we, they said, we're not going to have anything to do with those, those people anymore. So relevant. And here's what the controversy was about. Who gets to be in? Who gets to be a part of church? How good do you have to be? How many rules do you have to keep? How much of your lifestyle do you have to clean up before you can be accepted in church? Who should be a part? See, that's the controversy that's going on. That's the, that's the struggle. That's the tension that's taking place. And it makes sense. If you think about it in connection with the history of what's going on right there in Acts. See, the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. And now Paul is going out and he is telling non-Jews that they can be right with God. <laughs> Blow into their mind. See, the Jews had the Ten Commandments and over 600 other laws. And following Jesus had come to be seen as an extension of their Jewish faith. You understand that, that many of those first Christians continued to practice their Jewish laws and teachings. They continued Sabbath and they continued synagogue and they continued temple. And since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, it just made sense, right? If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you first need to be a follower of Moses. Jesus himself said that he did not come to destroy the law. He only came to fulfill it. So it just makes sense if you're Jewish. But what if you're not Jewish? What if you're from Lystra or, or Derby or any of those other places that, that Paul and Barnabas go around saying, hey, there is this guy, his name was Jesus, he's the son of God, he was demonstrated by God to be the Messiah through the crucifixion and resurrection, and it's because of him that you can have life, not just here, but eternal. They say, you know what? Uh, Paul told us that we could have peace with, with God. Because of who Christ was and, and who Christ is. And he didn't mention anything about being Jewish. But then there's some Jewish Christians that find their way into these Gentile areas. And, and they follow in behind Paul and Barnabas. And they say, slow your roll, guys. Hang on. You're getting way too carried away with this Jesus thing. Because first, you, you need to, there's some scriptures that you're going to need to memorize. And, and there, are some, there are some lifestyle changes that you guys are going to have to have. And there are some things that you're just going to have to come, come to grips with. And there are these rules that you're going to have to follow. And then you can embrace Jesus. And then you can be church. And let's be honest. This is a similar reason as to why many of people that we know today have dropped out of church. Because they thought they just couldn't measure up to the rules and the standards. Just not good enough. Just not good enough to be a church person. Now some of us can see the flip side of this. I mean, if you've been a Christian for say 10 plus years, or if you were raised in, in church, you understand. Because part of Christianity is a moral and ethical standard. The expectation is that a Christ follower will display the character of Christ. 
And at the same time, though, there's this message of, of grace and forgiveness. And often what happens is that the truth of the gospel, that here's what you need to do and, and, and here's the person that you're going to need to be, it comes into conflict with the grace of the gospel. And they begin to push against each other. And when that conflict arises, church people historically have built walls. It's what we do. And yet when, when John was writing his gospel, and he's going to describe Jesus, in the very first chapter, John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And then this is what he says, full of grace and truth. No conflict. It wasn't, he was the balance of grace and truth. That's kind of what we like to do in our churches. Let's be balanced. Let, let, let's not lean too much towards grace. Let's not lean too much towards truth. And, and John says, I didn't see a lot of balance in Jesus. I saw grace and truth together. No conflict. And when we get this as a church... When we begin to understand that it's not a balancing act and it's not a clean yourself up first and neither is it, let's just throw out all the standards so that everybody can feel good about themselves and whatever life that they're living. When the church gets this right and we become the embodiment of grace and truth, then the result is that forgiveness isn't dumbed down and grace is not dumbed down. And the moral imperatives of Christianity aren't dumbed down either. It's grace and truth together. And the early church struggled with this. And so does the church today. So here's what we're going to do. I want us to look at this controversy. It's in Acts 15 in your Bible. The scriptures are not going to be up on the screen. There's a ton of them. And I want you to be able to see this and follow through. So, so get out your phone. Pull up your Bible app. Get out your actual Bible. Look there. There's probably one in the pew back that's in front of you. Find Acts 15, the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then there is the book of Acts. And I just want to walk through this for a few minutes. It says in verse 1 that certain people came down from Judea. This is the area of Palestine. This is the area where Jerusalem is. This is where the followers of Jesus began. But remember, they have been spread out since then because of persecution that has broken out. But there are those who have stayed there in the region. And it says that they went from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Listen closely. Unless you are circumcised... According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you have a surgery, you can't be a Christian. That's what they said. <laughs> and the Gentiles are going, I'm pretty sure Paul didn't mention anything about that. <laughs> I mean, I think I would remember it if Paul said anything about that. They said, no, no, you can't be Christian until you're Jewish. And since you didn't have the surgery when you were eight days old, like all of our good Jewish boys did, then you must do it now to be saved. You need to be a part of the Moses Club before you can be a part of the Jesus Club. 
Now, what this meant was that the new members class was primarily women and children. I mean, the men are out in the car going, I just don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I, Jesus, I'm for, but uh, that's what they said. You want to be a Christian? Got to have surgery. And so this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Paul shows up and he says, listen, we got to talk. We got to talk about something. Because Barnabas and I, we have been going to all of these different cities and we've been telling people, you can be a disciple of Jesus. And now there's some people from here who are following around us going, no, 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 no. Paul and Barnabas got ahead of themselves. They're on that slippery slope and you got to be careful about who you let in and who you allow to be a part. And Paul says, I haven't been telling them that they've got to be Moses followers. And folks, we're sending a mixed message. Look at verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. See, now you had these Pharisees who could not deny what they had witnessed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But also, they could not put aside their truth, their Jewish truth. For the Pharisees, they were the keepers of the law. They were those teachers of the law. They were the ones that wanted to make sure that the Jews were holy and pure and that they walked the line that God asked people to walk. And they're struggling with this idea. They're struggling with the idea that you can be a part of us even though you don't act like us. And some today still struggle. Can a person be my brother without being my twin? Jews had over 600 laws. Some say about 613 perhaps to be specific. And so these Pharisee believers said, here's what I want you to do, Paul. You get back on your boat and you sail back to all those cities and you go tell those new believers that they need to adapt their entire lifestyle around our 600 plus laws. And they've got to eat differently. And they've got to obey the Sabbath. And they've got to dress differently. And they've got to worship differently. And once they have bought into this new lifestyle, and once they believe the right things and have a surgery, then they can be church. Then they can be in. And friends, this thinking creeps in as we ourselves settle into our version of Christianity. And when someone comes along and they don't fit our version, let's just call it what it is. We become Pharisaic. And we become very uncomfortable. Remember the first time I met Megan Powell. I was a freshman in college 
And I'd gone to college with my truth. And it was in conflict with God's grace. Because I went to college with my truth and I knew that those who were real Christians only carried a King James Bible and never listened to Stephen Curtis Chapman. That was my truth. And then I met this young lady named Megan Powell and she didn't carry my Bible and, and she listened to contemporary Christian music and, and she was passionate about her faith and and she spoke out often in Bible study and in small group. And, and she was bringing people with her to, to the different devotionals that were going on. And let me tell you, I was uncomfortable. Because she didn't fit my version of what a Christian was. Because she wasn't keeping my rules. She was getting outside my box. And I didn't know what to do with her. And I didn't know why people of the church were letting her be there and be so vocal and be so outspoken and be such a disciple. And I was a Pharisee. And I was struggling. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter stands up and addresses them. He says, brothers, you know that at the same time or some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Peter says, hey, listen, this isn't just a Paul thing. You remember how I went and I talked to the um, Italian guy, Cornelius baptized his whole household. And, and you guys remember that when I came back and you had heard that I had been eating with Gentiles, you were all upset. And I said, listen, we can't hinder God. This is what God's doing. This is a God thing. It's not just Paul. It's not just Barnabas, but it's... It's bigger than that. The church is bigger than what you are thinking. And he says in verse 8, God who knows the heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, I don't know the heart. I just know how you dress. I don't know the heart. I just, I just know how you act. I don't know your heart. I just know where you spend your Saturdays or where you worship on Sundays. I don't know your heart. But Peter says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Even though they dress different. And even though they have things on their body that looks different. It says in verse 9, He did not discriminate between us and them. For He purified their hearts by faith. He's telling these Jewish Christians that acceptance is not limited to their brand of Christianity. And you can almost hear the response, right? Well, he might have purified their hearts, but they have some nasty Gentile habits. And they don't eat right, and they don't, they don't worship right. And he might have purified their heart, but 
but they don't speak our language. He might have purified their heart, but they're a different color than I am. He might have purified their heart, but they're just a little too emotional. He might have purified their heart, but it says in verse 10, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we or our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter actually looks at the group and basically what he's going, he's like, Frank, hey Frank, you're, you're, yeah, Frank in the back there. Um, Frank, you, you ever violated the law? I know you have, Frank, because I've seen you at the temple offering a sin sacrifice. Frank, have you ever violated, yeah, all right, yes, I violated the law. All right, so you violated the law before, Frank, right? How often do you keep all the laws, Frank? Well, I'm not that, I'm usually at the temple about once. How many times? Twice. How many times? Okay, three, four times a day. So, Frank, why do you want to take a law that you're not even able to keep and put it on the backs of people who haven't even grown up knowing anything about that law? Why is that, Frank? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He says we are saved by grace. And God can purify a heart before you purify your life. God can purify a heart before you drop that ugly habit. God can purify a heart before you come to terms with the insecurities that drive you to the destructive behaviors that have been hurting your relationships. And if he can do it for you, then he can do it for the people that are around you because it's grace and truth together. No conflict. And Barnabas and Saul begin sharing what God is doing among the Gentiles. And when they finish, James, the brother of Jesus, speaks up. Now let me tell you, if there's anybody that should be able to stand up and say, Jesus was not the Messiah, it should be James, right? I mean, because what would you have to do to convince one of your brothers that you were God? I mean, you're like, I don't care. I don't care if he feeds everybody at a mox game. I don't care if everybody gets hot dog and popcorn and we only started out with one. I am not going to believe that my brother is a Messiah. And yet James believes and he stands up. And he says, hey guys, this is what the prophet said was going to happen. And then he says something. It's an extraordinary statement. I want you to look in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore. He says, I've listened to everything. I've heard all that's been said. He says, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying, I know there's a standard, I know that we have commandments, and that God is a God of absolutes, and I know that Jesus came and he lived a life of grace and forgiveness, and I understand that those things sometimes come into conflict with each other, and those two ideas, grace and truth, become uncomfortable, and it gets messy, and we don't always know how to sort things out. But the bottom line here, this is what I've concluded. As this movement continues and as it spreads around the world from city to city to city, as people are called from darkness to light, we should not make it difficult for the people who are turning to God. And church, can I echo his words? 
we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. This is about outreach. This is about the people who are not here yet. This is about the people who are considering the message of Jesus. And anything that we do that makes it difficult for these people is to stand against the will of God. You say, well, everybody should speak the same language. Where do you see that in the Bible? Well, everybody needs to worship my way. Not there. Here's what he says instead. Verse 20. Instead, we need to write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Here's what they need to do, he says. Basically, he said, we're going to write them a letter. We're going to write them a letter and we're going to tell them to do basically three things. We're going to say that they need to abstain from, from food polluted by idols. They need to um, stay away from strangled animals, from blood, and avoid sexual immorality. And you can see the guy that's writing down. He goes, okay, and what's next? Well, that, that's all. No, no, we've got 613 laws. We haven't said anything about circumcision. We haven't said anything about not lying. We haven't talked to them at all about the church organization. We haven't spoken to them about worship. We haven't talked to them about how they're supposed to dress. What? Basically, here's what James says. Tell them, try not to offend the Jews and abstain from sexual morality. He says, understand the cultural context in which you live out your Christianity. That's why he puts that in there about how that the law of Moses has been preached in every city. Because there were, there were Jews that were living in all these places and some of these issues that, that were very important to them. He says, listen, try not to offend the Jews. But you don't have to keep the Jewish law. But what about end times? And what about Torah translations? And, and, and what, about, what about all these other things that are so important that are a part of our identity and what make us different than all of the other Christ followers who are around? He said, that's my message to them. That's it. So in verse 30, it says, the men were sent off. They went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered the letter. And you know, they were sitting there going, circumcision, no circumcision. Circumcision, and they read it, and it says the people were glad for the encouraging message. Grace and truth should not be in conflict with one another. And you say, I don't know, Chris, that sounds like a slippery slope to me. Any of you, that's one of your favorite phrases, anybody? That's some people's favorite, favorite phrase. I don't know, that's slippery slope. You know, we start doing that and then it leads to this and leads to this and leads to this and leads to this or, or we let those people in and then these others are going to come and then it's just one thing after another. I want to give you three slippery slopes to avoid if you like slippery slopes, okay? Based on this text. Here's the first one. We must avoid slipping toward insiders and away from outsiders. Now, this is understandable. 
Because people who do not attend here don't call and complain to me. People that don't attend here don't call the elders and want to have meetings. And so the focus gets put on the squeaky wheel. Or, or those that give. Or those that try to work the system. And that's why we pray for boldness. That's why we pray to, to be bold in the things that we do and the way that we live. Because the worst thing that could happen is that we get big and that we get comfortable and attempt to make everyone on the inside happy. By the way, how's that going for everybody? Hmm? It's the worst thing that could happen. For us to say, here's our version of Christianity and if you can fit into it, then you can come and be here. And if not, good luck to you. We must avoid slipping towards insiders and away from outsiders. Here's the second thing. We must avoid slipping toward law and away from grace. Law makes categories of people. I'm not talking here about are we saved by by works or grace. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about how that when you slip toward law, you begin to put people into categories. This is how we know we're beginning to go down this particular slippery slope. Because people come and say, what's your policy? What's your policy regarding women? What's your policy regarding marriage and divorce? What is your policy regarding homosexuality? What's your policy on felons? What's your policy? See, policies and categories are easy. Because you never have to meet with anybody. You never have to have a conversation. You just send out a form letter and the right people sign it and mail it off. And so Jesus walks by Matthew and Matthew is a tax collector. And uh uh-oh, policy, tax collectors cannot be a part of God's people. And Jesus says, come follow me. And the other disciples are, wait a minute, he's a tax collector. He He can't follow and be with us. He hasn't committed to not being a tax collector yet. Well, not only is he going to follow us, but we're going to go to his house. And we're going to eat with him and other tax collectors. And then there's Zacchaeus, policy, another tax collector. And then there's the adulterous woman. Wait a minute, she can't be a part. And Jesus says, listen, you need to stop living the life that you're living. I'm offering you forgiveness. Now get out of that. Stop being that person. But wait a minute. They haven't committed to change. And they haven't learned all of our rules. And they don't know all of our, uh, our ways. And they don't know our secret handshakes. Shh, shh. It's not about policies and categories. It's about conversations. Where when we encounter individuals who desire to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we talk to them and we share truth with them and we offer grace to them and we treat them like a child that is loved by God never throwing away truth and never abandoning grace here's the third We must avoid slipping toward preserving rather than advancing. Business owners, you guys that started your own business, you remember when you first got started and you'd risk anything because you had nothing? Remember that? You didn't have anything. 
So, so you didn't care. You, you, made, you made big risk in order to, to grow your business. And you had nothing to preserve. But then the longer that you were in business, you became more risk averse because you had more to hold on to and you did not want to lose what you had built. And our tendency is to be very much like the Jews. God gave us the law and we need to hold on to it and we need to protect it and we need to make sure that it's not trampled on and that no one throws it away. We must preserve. And in their effort to preserve the law, they forgot to advance the kingdom. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, we're going to advance and we're going to love and we're going to give people second and third and fourth chances even if it's messy. Friends, we must not make the mistake and allow our desire to preserve, override our mission to advance the kingdom of God. And let me get personal. And you say, wow, you've already gotten real personal. I prayed over this next part. Hard. We all have a church sweet spot. You realize that, right? That time and place when church was impactful and meaningful and fulfilling. A time when things were as they should be. In, in my own spiritual walk, it was back when I was in college and the relationships that I had there and the church that I was a part of. In, in ministry, I look back and there was a time when I was preaching in Birmingham, Alabama. And because of just the dynamics, different things that were happening there, I look back and I say, boy, that, boy, that was a great time to be in church. We all have that. But then here's our wish that we have. We wish that church could be just like it was then. And so we try to preserve and we sometimes try to force church today to be like then. But here's the problem with that. The church then was made up of different people than the church now because the church, the church isn't a building and the church isn't a ministry and the church isn't a worship. Church is people on mission. And because the church is people, church will always change. That's why locations change. We don't meet in the same place anymore that we used to when the East Brainerd Church of Christ first began meeting together. Some of you can, can trace your steps back to all the different places that this congregation has met. And you've been a part of that. And God bless you for doing that. And as people change, ministries change. Some of you went through the bus ministries of, of years gone by. And, and we've, we've had other ministries that have gone on here. Our school supply day. And now we've added Watts and... and we, we, we've, we've stopped some ministries. We've added some other ministries. And it, it's all changing because, because the people have changed. And as the people change, the worship styles change. People like different types of songs. And some people are more reserved. And some people are more expressive. And, and some people keep their hands to their side. And some people raise them up. And some people clap and some people don't some people stand and and some people sit some people some people get on their knees to pray and some might even lay down on the floor all these changes are because the makeup of our churches 
change. Doesn't mean they're all necessarily for the better, it's just different. See, this church cannot be like it was 40 years ago, or 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, or even five years ago, because we have a different church now. We're different people. I can't have here at East Brainerd the church that I had at Auburn because you're different people. I can't have here at East Brainerd the church that I had in Birmingham because you're different people. And as more and more people become a part of the church, church will look different. That's what the Jews were struggling with. If those Gentiles come in, it's going to change our Jewishness, our Jewish church. And I know that there are some that have thought, you know, if those who speak Spanish come in, it's going to change what we do. And years before that, it was if those who are African American come in, it's going to change. And if we let some of these young people get off with some of their ideas, it's going to change. While God's people's change, God's mission for his people remains constant. And because of this, we must not make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ. We can't stand in the way of our Hispanic brothers and sisters. We cannot stand in the way of the young people who are coming to Christ. We can't stand in the way of people who come from a different background, who come from a different life experience. And we can't say, you've got to get it all just like we've had it, just how we've grown up. And it's got to look exactly like it did when I was a teenager, or when I first got married, or when I first came here to this place. We can't do that. And I know it's difficult to hear. And it's uncomfortable. So here's two commitments. Let's be bold. Let's be willing to be uncomfortable and engage others in Jesus' conversations. We need to be able to keep this as a place where outsiders feel welcome. And so that's why we've asked for prayers for boldness, prayers to be able to reach out, prayers to be able to have opportunities to have that one. Remember, we've asked you to have that one person that you're praying for, that one person that you can share the message of the resurrection with, that one person that we want to celebrate as they're baptized into Christ. Let's be bold. And then I would say let's err on the side of grace. If we're going to make mistakes, then let's err on the side of grace. Because aren't you glad that God erred on the side of grace in your life? Aren't you glad he didn't say, I'll love and accept you, but here's 613 things that you have to do first. So would you like to be in? Would you like to be church? All I can tell you is what we see in Scripture. Individuals who place their trust in Jesus as teacher, Savior, and risen Lord, who said, I want to be a disciple. They were baptized to express their submission and their desire to be born again without sin's consequences. 
They allowed the Spirit of God to empower life change. They were in. And it wasn't based on their belief and understanding of end times or church organization or worship. It didn't matter the language that they spoke or their education. It didn't depend on if they grew up in church. It didn't depend on their past or their present or their future. It only depended on if they would accept the message that there was a resurrected Lord and His name was Jesus Christ. And He lived among them full of grace and truth. No conflict. No slippery slope. Let's pray together. Father, it can be so difficult being a part of your called out, being a part of the movement that is church. Because we do have conflict and tension with with truth and grace because we desire to serve you and we desire to do everything in a way that will bring you honor and glory and that will be pleasing to you. Help us to avoid that, that slide that can sometimes see us sliding down into being very Pharisaic in the way that we look at others. Help us to realize the grace that came to us and the forgiveness that came to us through Jesus Christ. Help us to remember the excitement and the joy that we had at our at our own baptism and the way in which we felt free and and new and alive. And Father, may our eyes focus on, on those who do not know you and who do not follow in the steps of your Son. And may we not put up barriers for those who are, who are wanting to come and to, to be a part, to those who are wanting to come to, to give their lives to Jesus. May we only speak what your Scriptures speak. Father, may we not, may we not have categories and these different policies. Instead, let us be a people that have conversations. Let us be people who are willing to sit down with others who are different than us and others who are struggling with things that we've never struggled with and to be able to to open up your word and to, to present truth and grace. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us. We thank you for the truth that is found in your word and in your son. And may we continue to be a people filled with grace and truth. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.